This episode is brought to you by The Thinkery in Austin, Texas. The Thinkery is where Austin's children and their families come to enjoy play-based, inquiry-rich, hands-on learning experiences. Thinkery's hands-on educational approach and interactive exhibits support the development of children's educational curiosity and social-emotional development. Their mission is to create innovative learning experiences that equip and inspire the next generation of creative problem solvers. In these current times, the Thinkery has taken into consideration social distancing, and they are currently open Thursday through Sunday each week for Path to Play, a 90-minute exhibit exploration experience that allows small groups to learn and play while maintaining proper social distancing and maintaining interaction with other guests. Check out their website at thinkeryaustin.org for tickets and available dates. But if you're still concerned about your health and safety, consider checking out their website as they have a lot of great videos and tools online for free. They also have an online store that you can purchase different activities for your children and family to enjoy. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Moon Tower Business Podcast. This is your host, Joseph O'Bell, and today I'm speaking to Joe Jaworski, who is a candidate for Texas Attorney General. Joe, how are you? I am well, Joseph. Thank you for having me as a guest on your awesome podcast. Thank you. I, absolutely. Thanks for, for joining us. Uh, Joe, uh, before we launch into your, your candidacy, uh, maybe tell listeners a little bit about your background and experiences. Absolutely. Uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and uh, at a young age, uh, became uh, excited to be a drummer. And so at age seven, I began drumming, and it it has always been a lifelong uh, hobby of mine. Uh, I went to college in North Carolina uh, at Davidson College uh, and majored in Spanish literature. Y yo hablo español, es mi lengua segunda. Hablas muy bien. Sí, señor. Muchas gracias. (laughs) <laughs> yo, yo deseo a comunicar con todos los votantes en Texas durante esta campaña. Perfecto. All right. So, so but uh, after graduating college, when I was uh, um, uh, expected to go to law school to be the third uh, generation Jaworski lawyer, Leon Jaworski, my grandfather, my dad, Joseph, and then I was expected to attend University of Texas Law School in 1984, but I had other ideas. Um, fact is, my junior year of college, I got to meet R.E.M. Uh, before they even put out their first album. And I saw them live and I thought, my God, that's what I want to do. So um, I called the law school and asked the dean to let me defer a year. And he thought that was highly unusual, but agreed to it. And then I just never called back. So I wound up playing in a rock band for four years called Other Bright Colors out of North Carolina. And uh, it was a great experience. Um, as all bands that aren't the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or whoever, we all broke up, you know. And uh, then I went to law school, graduated University of Texas Law School in 1991. I met my wife during that time. We graduated. We were married, uh, went to Houston, uh, and I clerked for a Eisenhower appointee federal judge by the name of John R. Brown, a Republican from Funk, Nebraska, who came to Texas and became a, a much touted admiralty and maritime lawyer, helped Eisenhower uh, in, in the 50s when there were no Republicans in Texas. And he uh, was appointed to the federal bench. 
he really became well known as a civil rights lawyer as well because he and the others, uh, Tuttle, Reeves, Wisdom, and Brown were known as the Four Horsemen and they integrated um, the Southern universities following Brown versus Board of Education. So I learned um, at the uh, knee of a great, uh, great jurist, John Brown. And so after that year, I then went into maritime defense work and represented oil and gas interests, uh, typically drilling offshore. Uh, they could be supply boats or oil and gas companies. Uh, and really learned a thing or two about trying a case in federal and state court. Uh, I owe a great deal to my mentors there at the law firm Griggs and Harrison. Uh, but then I wanted to become a plaintiff's lawyer. So in 1998, Joseph, I switched over to plaintiff's law and made about $20,000 my first year. And I think 19,000 my second year. And my wife and I were, you know, living on fumes. Uh, but by the third year, it finally took uh, and after a long uh, career in plaintiff's work, I became a full-time mediator and, and, uh, and also did some local politics, as I'm sure we'll talk about. And so you were a mediator in uh, Galveston County primarily? Sure. Uh, I uh, uh, became a mediator right around the time Hurricane Ike uh, devastated Galveston Island. And of course, that resonated greatly in my legal career, my political uh, aspirations, and just my home and my life and my kids and my wife. But the mediations really took off, Joseph, um, when all the homeowners uh, began suing Texas Windstorm Insurance Agency. And uh, there were literally thousands of claims. And the court, uh, the courts, uh, but one court was sort of the master of the proceedings, uh, needed mediators. And, and I wound up mediating like 2,400 claims in two and a half years. Wow. Wow. Did, did you get, did you have some luck uh, resolving a lot of those? Yes, we did. Uh, it, it was a, a point of pride uh, that, that these cases would settle. And if they didn't settle at the day of the mediation, then we stayed on them until they did settle. And so, you know, that took uh, compromise from both sides. Uh, but the important thing was to get homeowners paid and, and to get their claims, you know, turned into justice. And being a mediator is a unique skill um, because you have to discuss the risk of going forward with the large, you know, corporate or business interest and the individual homeowner. And you have to do it at the same time uh, in two different rooms. So you go back and forth, but it really requires you to be a, an empathetic listener uh, and a problem solver. Uh, and many of these are transferable skills that we need in politics and government right now. Absolutely. And you were, you were also the uh, mayor of Galveston. Uh, can you talk about some of your experiences in, uh, in your role as uh, mayor of Galveston? That's right, Joseph. Um, I was mayor of Galveston from 2010 to 2012. And uh, that was coinciding uh, with a lot of the mediations I did. Um, and so it was a very busy time, but I was very happy. Uh, I gave everybody my cell phone. I put it on all my campaign literature and uh, I was reachable. I was a very accessible mayor. Uh, one of the things I was very proud about in my legal career is holding uh, governments uh, to account when they would violate the Open Meetings Act and the Open Records Act. And I knew how to sue and I knew how to you know, send demand letters and, and cite the law. Uh, before I was mayor, uh, in fact, I, I sued the University of Texas system and all the regents individually 
it was kind of a ballsy move, if you know what I mean. And uh, the fact is, uh, this was following Hurricane Ike uh, in 2008, which again, devastated Galveston, uh, causing at least 75% of all structures to be rendered uninhabitable. I mean, can you imagine? And part of that was University of Texas Medical Branch, which you know is the greatest employer on Galveston Island. It's upward of over 10,000 employees on any given day in the University of Texas system as far as the medical branch. And come to find out, um, two months after everyone's had their life destroyed, uh, the regents met in El Paso and in a closed session uh, fired uh, 4,800 people uh, with oh, the stroke wow. of a pen. And, and I found that outrageous and it was also against the law. Uh, you can't go into an executive session as the employer. Uh, it's reserved for the employee. And so anyway, that's another story. But, but from that, I was able to achieve a settlement and the legislature was meeting at the same time uh, in 2009. And it really helped uh, rebuild Galveston and rebuild University of Texas Medical Branch. From that, I ran for mayor. Uh, so you can see I was, you know, it was a very popular uh, uh, um, result. And, and from that, I got the idea, well, maybe I can serve my city on a greater scale. Uh, I won the election in May 2010 uh, in a five-way race without a runoff, which, you know, is a pretty big deal. Got 53%. And the victory lap, you know, lasted a few months. Uh, and what we need to remember is that uh, in 2008, when Hurricane Ike hit, uh, Barack Obama was elected um, several months later. And you remember the government uh, of Pelosi as speaker and Harry Reid as majority leader and um, Barack Obama, uh, the president, the, the same government that gave us the Affordable Care Act also took care of Galveston. Um, our congressman was Ron Paul, and he did not uh, see fit to helping Galveston get disaster funds because it was not consistent with his libertarian vision. Uh, so we got help from the Houston congressional delegation and Galveston got close to $900 million. The reason I'm telling you this is that at, as mayor, uh, I was expected to help rebuild the island and it was my privilege to do it. Um, and part of that was rebuilding public housing, Joseph. And um, in the course of my leadership, uh, some interests in Galveston, some racist, some simply economic, uh, did not like the idea that I was uh, championing the rebuilding of public housing, but not just public housing, but mixed income housing, which is a much better way to have a public uh, government style housing because you'll have doctors and lawyers, firemen and nurses, teachers, and income-eligible uh, housing residents, all in the same uh, neighborhood. And we got a for-profit uh, leader in the industry to come to Galveston. And I was able to sign the documents before uh, I lost re-election in a runoff over the public housing issue and that issue alone. It was a remarkable time. It, it was a real test for me because I had to choose doing the right thing over re-election. And you know, I wish more people in government did that. Gotcha. Yeah, that was that was very a very interesting time that you you served as mayor for for Galveston uh, during a, a very difficult challenge. You're running for AG. Can you talk about what inspired you to do that? Well, since since being mayor in 2012, Joseph, I've been a 
a good mediator uh, and, and have helped help raise the kids with my wife, which is my duty and my privilege. Uh, and the, the children are older now. Um, you know, we, we've got a 21 and almost a 17 year old. Uh, my wife and I see things the same way. Uh, and uh, we were moved by what is passing for acceptable in Republican leadership and Democratic leadership, to be fair. And um, I'm trying not to be partisan about this, uh, but Mr. Paxton, the Attorney General, uh, has uh, committed several errors in conduct, both in the office and out of the office, that lead a reasonable attorney and one who's had a history of public service to notice. And I'm just the kind of guy, Joseph, um, and my wife supports me in this. She's the same. Uh, instead of complaining, do something about it. Um, and, right. you know, the Jaworski name is consistent with um, a legacy of following the rule of law. Uh, my grandfather, Leon Jaworski, never served in elective office, but he certainly served in many government positions appointed uh, by Lyndon Baines Johnson and Robert F. Kennedy. And, and um, he even was the Watergate special prosecutor and has done so many turns of public service that that's in my blood. And so I follow the family legacy uh, with, with great duty. And I think Texas could use an attorney general with skills of trial law and someone who follows ethics and integrity as the touchstone of, of his business. Absolutely. And I want to follow up in a little bit after we, we talk about some, some other items uh, on your campaign. I want to follow up on your grandfather and his role as special prosecutor uh, in, the, in that Nixon matter. Um, so you're running for attorney general. You, you've announced. Um, can you talk about uh, is Ken Paxton running for reelection? What other candidates are, are out there yet right now? And are there any people that, that folks are talking about that they, they may run for, for attorney general? Right. I mean, I'm, I'm focused on, on my campaign and uh, I can tell you honestly that there are no other Democrats who have announced or declared, I think is the, the right word. Um, we are the only one. And, and so Joe Jaworski wants your vote uh, and I want your uh, support uh, in becoming the Democratic nominee and then ultimately the next attorney general of the great state of Texas. Um, Ken Paxton is running again, uh, is, is the intelligence we have. I think that's what he said. Um, we've heard rumors that he will have a Republican opponent in the Texas primary. Uh, George P. Bush, the land commissioner, has been uh, announced once by one of his spokespersons, but he's not come out and said he's running. Uh, but you would have to think that the Republican Party is grappling with whether Paxton is an acceptable candidate for any office, much less the most important attorney general office, which, you know, really is the keeper of the keys when it comes to rule of law. Um, as we know, this week, Mr. Paxton or his delegate is going to appear before uh, the Senate Finance Committee to argue for his budget. And uh, the word is they're going to cut it uh, as some form of punishment for, for what he's been up to. Um, but as far as we know, it's just me and Ken Paxton. Gotcha. So you, uh, you touched a little bit about your, ex your experience a little earlier. Can you talk about, I guess, what, what traits and what, what, uh, what experiences in your past make you the best candidate for this job? Sure. I mean, first off, I think my experience as a mayor, uh, which is a nonpartisan position, 
uh, meaning that I accept Republican and Democratic and independent and libertarian viewpoints as valid viewpoints uh, that need to be uh, managed and brought together. As a, as a local government official uh, who had to problem solve um, with, uh, with you know, the idea of an open government as the touchstone, these are all things that are very important. Serving as mayor, being an attorney who understands the Texas Open Records and Open Meetings Act, uh, being a mediator, uh, because you know, it's not just filing lawsuits, although that's a big part of being an attorney general, a lot of times, you know, dealing with leadership issues within your circle, because, you know, the, the pyramid structure of the, the org chart, if you will, the attorney general is clearly the elected leader of the office of attorney general. But there are several uh, deputies or division chiefs and managing, you know, that group is going to take skills. And, you know, Mr. Paxton has fallen well south of, of acceptable in that his entire leadership circle turned on him as they had to because he was breaking the law in their, in their eyes and they filed whistleblower letters with the FBI. I mean, it's just unprecedented. Uh, so I say uh, Joe Jaworski and you know me, <laughs> the candidate uh, brings leadership experience as mayor and council member, uh, a, a skilled 31 year attorney, trial law, experience, mediation experience, and um, uh, open meetings and open records experience. Uh, th these are valuable skills in, in, in leadership in Texas that's sorely missing right now when Ken Paxton is brought up. Absolutely. And you talked a little bit about the, the structure at the Attorney General's office. Can you talk a little bit more about the role that the, the Attorney General's office plays in, in state politics and, and things going on uh, throughout the state, some of the divisions uh, that are in the Attorney General's office? You bet, Joseph. I mean, here's what's interesting. You know, it is a constitutional statewide executive office, the office of the Texas Attorney General. And if you look back at the uh, Constitution of 1876, you know, the governor is compared to other state governors, a weaker uh, leader, a weaker executive than you find in other states. Uh, the legislature is part-time, meeting every two years for 140 days, and then a special session if, if one is requested and agreed to. But the attorney general is there 24-7, 365 days a year. And you know, if you look at the Constitution, uh, it basically declares that the attorney general must defend the state in litigation and I think that means it can also bring causes of action. Um, and the legislature over the years has added duties. So here's what uh, is a summary of what the attorney general is doing. Number one, child support. Uh, the federal government requires each state to appoint a designee on the uh, question of collecting child support uh, as part of the Social Security Act. And in Texas, it's the attorney general's office. Uh, that's probably where most of the 4,200 employees are, are delegated. Uh, child support is so important. Uh, and number two is uh, protecting the public's interest in charitable trusts. So the attorney general has an oversight of all charities and nonprofits because you know these are dollars that otherwise would be going to federal tax that would be then put toward the public good. But if you're, if you're diverting them to a charity, then someone has to make sure the charity is essentially serving the public interest as well. And uh, then let me say that the 
And I'm going to put these AirPods in because one of the greatest things about Zoom culture and working from home is that there's lots of ambient noise outside. So <laughs> if that's okay, Joseph, can you hear no me? Worries. Yes, I can. Okay, you bet. Uh, and then I'd say, you know, after filing lawsuits and uh, child support, the next one is charitable trust. Then the next one is public finance. That is all the bonds that your cities and counties and sometimes the state are filing and issuing in order to pay for public improvements, the attorney general's office has oversight uh, and, and make sure that the, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Uh, this is probably the most important one though, the attorney general legal opinion office. Um, and that is when there is an unsettled question of law, the governor, um, senators, the chairman of committees, uh, House representatives and others can ask for an attorney general opinion. Now, if the law is settled, you don't need to ask for an opinion. You just cite the law. But for those nuanced uh, opportunities where, where there's really not a clear answer, it is common that the attorney general will deliver a reasoned opinion uh, and, you know, hundreds a year. Um, and they've been doing this for decades. I, I remember and, doing. Uh, I remember that is, that role when, when I worked at the governor's office. There were requests to the attorney general's office for for official opinions, and, and a lot of that has to do with the the Open Records Act. Is that right? Well, and you're absolutely right. In fact, there is a separate section uh, that uh, does opinions just on open records and open meetings, um, and uh, then there's the section that does questions of all kinds of law. Gotcha. So um, that's, I mean, there's a lot that, that, that's going on in the, in the attorney general's office. And, and I mean, there's, I, I remember I, I did, a, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, I did an internship there. I mean, there's probably six or seven floors of employees at attorney general. How, how many employees are there more or less? Do you, do you, you know? Yeah, there's a little over 4,200 employees. Uh, 750 or so of which are attorneys. So, I mean, that's just a, and it's not just all in Austin. I mean, there's offices all around the state. Right. Um, and uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of great career staff, you know? So, I mean, assuming that a Democrat is elected to be uh, the attorney general, a Democrat for the first time in a generation, you know, some people might think, oh my God, there'll be great job loss. No, no, no. I mean, so many people that are there now, even attorneys, are great career attorneys or non-attorneys, and they've been there for decades, and they have great institutional knowledge, and, and, you know, the state values that. I think it's really more the leadership positions that, you know, each attorney general, whether they're of this party or that party, they, they would want to appoint their, their new designees fresh. Your last point kind of leads into my next question, um, you know, this last presidential election, um, the numbers were not like they used to be in Texas. Texas has historically been a red state. What is, what is your take on the political landscape in Texas? Is it is it purple? Is it turning blue? What what does it look like today? It's purple, uh, and and you know, I mean, obviously there are Democrats and Republicans selected and elected all over uh, the state. When it comes to statewide races, uniformly red. And it's been that way for a generation. But, you know, we've seen some close races. You know, um, uh, Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz were separated by a couple of points. Uh, the gentleman that ran uh, against Ken Paxton last time, Justin Nelson, very close, got 47 percent. And I 
I think Paxton didn't even get 51%. There was a, a third candidate, I want to say. It was an independent or a libertarian that, that got 2%. Um, so depending on the race, it's actually pretty close. Um, and, you know, this whole paradigm of the blue wave, I mean, that's, you know, a great metaphor. And I, I wonder whether that's really how Texas would go or would it be more nuanced um, and it would be a particular seat or office that statewide would, would go blue. Um, and I think that usually when we see states do that gradual shift from red to purple to blue, the initial change is typically in the office of the attorney general. And, and I think that may be just because, you know, people expect people running for governor or legislature, these policy positions to sort of be extreme, you know, and, and they're rewarded for it. But when it comes to the attorney general, you know, someone's got to be the adult in the room. Someone's got to enforce the concept of the rule of law. Someone has to be the counselor, which is what you would expect if you hired an attorney in your private life or for your business. And really, that's why the attorney general, I think, sometimes often makes that change because because sort of wacky off off level behavior is not is not rewarded in an attorney general's seat. And that's why Ken Paxton, I think, is is in jeopardy of losing the seat. Gotcha. So I, I think, I, I don't know if it was on your website or your social media. I saw that uh, you're, you're doing a campaign tour of Texas. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and kind of the timeline for it? Absolutely. So you can see in the background here, the Joe Jaws tour 2021. And what that refers to is my tour of social and democratic clubs and I'll tell you, Joseph, we're doing one every night. And this week we're doing actually three in one night. Uh, so COVID is a tragedy and, you know, I wish it hadn't happened and I'm glad people are getting vaccinated. Uh, but one of the byproducts is uh, the Zoom culture that I referred to earlier and everyone's doing everything by Zoom. So we thought, well, why not hit as many Democratic clubs as possible? Well, the re reception has been remarkable. And every day I'm adding a new stop or a new date. If you go to my website, JaworskiForTexas.com and look at the Joe Jaws tour, uh, you'll see all the stops. And it really is like a rock concert tour. And look, guy, I am telling you, Joseph, you know, I wish it had worked out with my rock band back in the 80s, but too bad it didn't. But we can have a little fun sort of imitating that with this Democratic tour because people, you know, they want to relate to their office holders. And there's no reason why we can't share the fun things we've done in our life, like playing music and have a little fun in the process. That's fun. I, and I saw you had one coming up in Austin. I know it's on Zoom, so I'm going to have to jump on that when, when it comes along and, and uh, check it out. Oh, please do. And, you know, that's, that's great. A lot of people are emailing me, hey, how can I get in this? And we'll just put you in touch with the host. And uh, each of these clubs are very open. So, you know, it, it, while we, we may not be the host or Joe Jaworski isn't the host, Right now, we're guests at each of these clubs. Oh, they're all very open-minded, and, and everybody's invited. Now, pretty soon, we're going to start hosting our own events, uh, and, and we, we're amassing an email list, and I look forward to having an opportunity to speak directly to people. That's great. Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, you mentioned your grandfather earlier, uh, Leon Jaworski, uh, who was special prosecutor in the Watergate uh, scandal. Can you t talk about... Um, you know, the story behind his role there and then just kind of your experience uh, as his, being his grandson growing up and hearing stories, et cetera. 
Oh, absolutely, Joseph. It's it's something I love talking about. And in fact, if you go to the website, Jaworski for Texas, under the About Joe, uh, uh, you know, button, there's there's a, a, a separate button that has my remarks that I gave at the most recent Leon Jaworski Award uh, right before COVID hit. So it was March 2nd last year. And I, I put my remarks up from that meeting. And it's, it's a warm memoir uh, of my grandfather and, and some great stories about Watergate. And it goes something like this. I'll give you a little summary. You know, he was a very successful corporate attorney who had done many turns of government service for presidents and attorneys general. Well, uh, in 1973, you know, Watergate was heating up and, you know, Alexander Haig was chief of staff and Richard Nixon was president. And as you know, Nixon saw to it that Archibald Cox, the original Watergate prosecutor, who Cox was a huge Kennedy uh, associate and Nixon did not like the Kennedys. He made sure that Cox got fired and it cost several people their jobs when they wouldn't fire him. But finally, Robert Bork fired Cox. Um, and and Nixon, you know, must have dusted his hands off and thought that's a good day's work. But sort of the young, uh, reasonable counterculture, everybody all together were outraged. And and Alexander Haig noticed this immediately. And he said, oh, my God, Mr. President, we've made a miscalculation. And so the decision was made, well, we need to replace Cox immediately with someone who won't cause trouble, but will cause the country to calm down. Well, they got the list of Supreme Court appointee possibilities out. And Leon Jaworski was the one they chose because even though Jaworski was a, a long-term Democrat, he voted for Nixon in 68 and 72. He just wasn't as liberal as Humphrey and McGovern. Oh, they thought they had a guy who would, who would protect them probably. Well, anyway, Leon went up there and there was a little suspicion from the Cox, you know, sort of young Harvard grad um, uh, staff, but he soon won them over. And Joseph, by you know, February or so, he's hearing the incriminating tapes where Nixon is suborning perjury from John Dean. And by then, he just was heartbroken that the president, a lawyer, in fact, I mean, it seems so quaint now because now we're just used to just all this outrageous behavior. But Leon Jaworski was truly dumbstruck that Richard Nixon would suborn perjury in the Oval Office. I mean, it was like a great violation of his moral code. And he just decided right then and there he knew what he had to do. Now, by March 74, there's no question, Leon was in the fight of his life. Would you believe me if I told you that he made sure his grandchildren all came to Washington for at least a week to, to be with him? I mean, what a great guy. What a family man. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Uh, my spring break when I was 12 years old, I spent a week at the Jefferson Hotel living with Leon and his wife, Jeanette. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I got to walk with him to the office of the Watergate special prosecutor. He, he had a huge uh, Wells Fargo safe where he would put his briefcase in every night in the hotel suite. Um, what a great guy. And so when he finally won the United States versus Nixon decision in the Supreme Court and about you know a few weeks later, Nixon resigned. And then a week later, Jaworski recommended to Ford that Nixon be pardoned, you know, Thus ended his experience. It all started and ended within 10 months. Wow, man, that's super exciting to be. Th that whole story is just uh, is, is amazing. And then the fact that you were able to be there as a, as a, a young kid and, and kind of be part of that is, is very amazing. 
Oh man, it's, and I go back to Washington now in my business, you know, as a mediator and my son uh, and I were, were in Washington within the last year and we, we uh, retraced uh, my steps as a 12 year old when I walked with my grandfather who we affectionately called the Colonel because nice. he was a, he, he was a Colonel during World War II when he prosecuted Nazis after oh, the wow. war. Yeah. Um, uh, we retraced the steps that I took with the Colonel from the Jefferson to the office of the Watergate special prosecutor um, uh, in 1974, you know, almost 50 years ago. Very nice. Uh, Joe, I've, I've taken a lot of your time. I, I got some final questions for you here to, to wrap up. Um, number one, uh, what is your favorite book? And then number, <laughs> number two, uh, I know you, you spent some time in Austin uh, when you were going to law school at, at UT. And uh, I want to know what your favorite restaurant is in Austin. Oh, you got it. Well, first, the book, uh, a completely Houston, Texas book, uh, a true story of crime and murder, um, Blood and Money by Tommy Thompson. Uh, and I actually own a first edition of it that I bought at a used bookstore on University Boulevard near Rice. Uh, and uh, I remember my parents had this book and, and I, was, I was fascinated by it. My aunt, uh, Joni Jaworski, uh, is featured in the book. She was best friends uh, with uh, Joan Robinson Hill, uh, who is the victim in the book. Uh, and it is absolutely perfectly captures uh, uh, mid to late 1960s Houston. And, you know, I was alive then, but a little kid. So it's good to, to read uh, from whence I came. Uh, so that's the book. And as far as the restaurants, uh, my wife and I met in Austin in 1988. And uh, she, she would like to go on these uh, crazy diets and, and it would sometimes uh, cause us to only have like, you know, if I wanted to support her on this, uh, like 600, 800 calories a day. Well, I, I can't live like that. And so I would sneak off to this restaurant that was the greatest barbecue. It was called Ruby's Barbecue, not Rudy, but Ruby's. And it was at the old Fajita Flats right there at like 29th and Guadalupe and uh, Pat and Luke were the coolest people. And this was a late night joint. And, you know, it was right like all the rockers, Stevie Ray Vaughan would go in there uh, when he was alive. And my favorite was the quarter pound Elgin sausage plate. Uh, and I would get like a double order. And then my wife would always, when, you know, she wanted to go eat this and we did often, she would get the extra lean plate. And when we finally decided to get married, uh, we, we were excited about it and told the clerk at the, at the counter, and he turned around to the chef and said, oh, you're not going to believe it. Mr. Extra Sausage Plate is going to marry Miss Extra Lean Barbecue Plate. And so that, <laughs> that's how we were known, you know. Uh, and, and so that restaurant and then another one that I always loved has, has also closed. I mean, Austin's changing, man. Uh, Mother's at 43rd and Duval. Uh, we used to go eat there all the time. So we, we had the meat meal and then we had the vegetarian meal. Uh, uh, as far as restaurants now, um, you know, hey. I, I'm a big fan of, of Austin uh, food, and uh, I, I would say uh, El Sol y la Luna is a great restaurant, and Gueros. I love Gueros. Awesome, very good choices, and, and some uh, some cool stories on the on those restaurants that are no longer. Sure, uh, Joe. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, please tell folks how they can find you online and learn more about you. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for that, uh, Joseph. So the website is. Uh, jaworski for texascom 
and that's F-O-R, uh, JaworskiForTexas.com. And what you'll find there is a fully developed website with a lot of information, and more importantly, our Facebook and Twitter uh, uh, connections. And I want you to get on there. I want you to like my social media, if you would, and and spread the, the website around to your friends. You know, find five people, and you're like, hey, look, I, I heard this guy on a podcast. He sounds like he might be a credible candidate. Check him out. And that is how politics should be run is the people drive it. And I'm asking everybody to consider contributing to my campaign. You know, every $5, $10 contribution adds up and there's absolutely a link on our website so you can contribute. And I promise you, I will put that money toward getting a positive message out. We didn't talk much about my campaign platform, but that's okay. Cause you can go to the website and see it. But I want you guys to know that I am all for open government I'm for local decision-making authority. I am going to be a very zealous candidate for the legalization of recreational use cannabis. And I am going to be a supporter of uh, the Affordable Care Act as attorney general, rather than someone who sues to block it, because Texas is leaving $5.6 billion a year on the table. We pay our taxes every year. I want some of that money back to insure men, women, and children, and to support our vital network of rural hospitals. And finally, what you guys need to know and what I want the voters to know is that Joe Jaworski will never embarrass Texas in the United States Supreme Court. I'll never file frivolous litigation of any sort. When the Jaworski Attorney General Administration files, it will be to protect the consumer rights of Texans. And that's my pledge to you. Awesome. Joe Jaworski, thanks so much for being here. And uh, folks, please check out his website, learn more about him. Joseph, thanks so much for inviting me. You have a great podcast. Thank you, sir. This episode is brought to you by Vineyard Sun. Vineyard Sun is a local Austin company that makes quality sunglasses made from sustainable materials. You can see their styles on vineyardsun.com or follow them on Instagram at vineyard underscore sun.